This morning we continue in the series on the Word Made Flesh out of Luke's Gospel. We're close to the end. This morning we're going to get into chapter 6, verses 12 to 26, which is really the first part of a two-part little sub-series here um, that will take us through to most of the rest of chapter 6 as well. So think of this as part one of two parts this morning. Um, This week really lays the foundation for what, God willing, we will talk about next week. So Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 26. Again, we see Luke portraying the Word made flesh for us. And here what the Word does is it calls his disciples. So starting at verse 12, again, the very Word of the living God. In these days he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, For power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, let's turn once again to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, our Father in heaven, now as we come before your word, we ask that you would bless this time. Indeed, we ask that you would speak to us, and that in speaking to us, you would fulfill your promise that your word goes out and does not return to you void, but instead accomplishes everything that you purpose for it, instead is successful in the very things for which you send it. For us again, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us this morning, to open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the things that you have for us this morning from your word. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk according to what it teaches us. 
Again, Father, we ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, I thought I had two sermons to go in this series. And um, while studying, I found out I had more than that. And wanted to spend some time here in chapter 6, because there's an important part of the call of the word. That we talked about two weeks ago. It begins with the call to repentance and faith. The call to everyone goes out. Repent, believe, confess your sins, and confess Christ as Savior. But we can't just stop there. If we just stop with the call to repentance and faith, there's the danger that those who come will think, well, I can do anything I want now. Something we call antinomianism, against the law. So we must also recognize that the Word calls us to be His disciples, to follow Him. And that's what I want to focus on here in chapter 6. I don't want to leave that part of the call out. The Word calls us to follow Him, to do what He calls us to do. And in so doing, we avoid any danger of living a licentious lifestyle that would be contrary to Christianity. Of course, we can't just focus on that part of the call because then we would forget that we have been called out of sin and and bondage, and we might think we are righteous in our own eyes, in our own ways, in our ability to follow Jesus, how good we are. So we have to have both. So we will talk about this call to be disciples, Lord willing, this week and next, and then look at one other part of the call of the word to us, which is the call to life from death to life, and a powerful call that that is. And then after that, we'll conclude with one more sermon, Lord willing. At least that's my plan right now. So that's where we're going. No special outline this morning in the text. I just want to follow it piece by piece because I think it flows very well from section to section. So let's just dive in. Let's start with verses 12 to 16. This section that begins with prayer. Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray. He prays all night to God his Father. And this is something we see Jesus doing time after time after time in, at important events in his life and ministry. This should be a little clue to us then that what we're about to see is not just any common, ordinary thing, but something very special and very important, very significant, something that we should pay attention to. And so it continues that as as he came down from the mountain, he called his disciples, some translations add, he called them to himself. I think that's a fair inference from the text. He called his disciples to himself, and out of those disciples chose twelve to be apostles. And they're listed for us by name. Kind of a simple little four verses there, four or five verses. But some lessons that we can learn already. First of all, as we saw, the word calls everyone to repentance. That is what Jesus was called to do. To call sinners to repentance. But not all hear that call. Not all respond favorably to that call. Only some, therefore, are called as disciples. We call this effectual calling. Those who hear the call to repentance and respond and 
we, we use the term that they embrace Jesus. But we also can see, even in this little section here, that those who are disciples are called to different roles. Some are called to a special kind of leadership that we see here, apostles. Those who are sent to speak with his voice, to speak on his behalf with his authority. Why 12? Well, because these are the patriarchs of the new Israel. The Old Covenant had 12 patriarchs, the heads of the 12 tribes. And now there's no longer tribes, because we are no longer Greek or Jew, but we are one nation. But still 12 patriarchs, still 12 that stand as leaders of the new Israel. By the way, that means it's a one-time office. There's no more than 12. (laughs) Um, There can be no more than 12. There were no more than 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes. You can't have two fathers of the same tribe. It doesn't make any sense. And so apostle is no longer an office of the church. But we can infer from this, one, that we do need leadership in the church, but that the, the disciples are called each to have a different role in the church. What Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, the later chapters, after our reading this morning. Each person, each disciple, has a a role suited to his or her unique gifts and calling in life. Some give. Some give generously. Some show hospitality. Some teach. Some lead. Some counsel. Some are good apologists. Some are good evangelists. Some come alongside and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and so on. Everybody serves in the way in which they are called according to the gifts that they have, and we see this principle even laid out or implied, I think, in these verses. Another thing that's going on here, we see the apostles named. And, and I just think it's worth remembering that every time we see a list like this in Scripture where God's people are named by name, that should kind of smack us upside the head with the realization that God knows his people and he knows them by name. Each and every one of you here this morning who has repented and believed, God knows by name. He knows you. He knew you when you were in your mother's womb and even before. And more than that, he he chose the 12 apostles, but he chose each and every one of you as well, individually. Not some random thing, not some general concept. Some people like to say election is, you know, this kind of thing where God chooses all who will believe as a category. No, he chose you. He chose you by name. Your name is written in his book of life. So every time you see these lists of names, genealogies, lists of all the tribes and of all the people who served in the temple in Solomon's time or when Ezra and Nehemiah restored it, these names are just a little, I think, a sweet reminder. God knows his people intimately by name. That's powerful to me. So here we have Jesus calling his disciples to himself and choosing 12 to be his special apostles. Luke 
keeps the story moving. And what I think is going on for much of the rest of chapter 6 is Luke showing us how Jesus then instructs his disciples and how to follow him. Chapter 6, for me, of Luke is one of those wonderful parts of Scripture that if you want to know how to live life as a Christian, you go here. 1 Corinthians 13, Romans 12, the latter parts of Ephesians. But here, if you want to know how Jesus wants you to live as his follower, start in verse 17 and go to the end of the chapter. He's teaching his disciples how to follow him. And what he does first is teach by showing them. In verses 17 to 19, he came down with his disciples stood on a level place. There's a great crowd of his disciples. There's a great multitude of people, says the word, all the way from Judea and Jerusalem in the south to Tyre and Sidon in the north. They came to hear him. They came to hear the word speak to them. But they also came to be healed of their diseases. And that's what Jesus did. He taught them and he healed them. Those troubled with unclean spirits were cured. The power that he has is so palpable and so real that they they just want to touch him so they can be healed. And, and And Luke says something very succinct but very incredible as well. Power came out from him and healed them all. Those who claim to have that power today, if they had any sense of mercy or compassion would go to the hospitals and heal everyone in there. They don't. You know the excuse they use? They don't have faith. It's their fault. They don't have faith. And so you've got to come to a faith service and get your faith stirred up. That's not how Jesus operates. Real healing power works. He healed them all. This is an example to us, not of healing power, but just of simple service. They came to hear him teach. They came to be ministered to, and that's what he did. We don't have the same power because we are not Christ, but we do have a call to serve. We do have a call to teach, to reach out and and meet the needs of those who are around us, those who are sick, those who are troubled, those who are in need. We serve our neighbor. We've talked about this before as we considered the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who, the, the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he tells this great story. Who's your neighbor? That guy lying beside the road who's been attacked, who needs help. The righteous people pass him by. It's the lousy, crummy Samaritan who acts like a neighbor to him. Be like that person. Is there a person in need around you? Then that's your neighbor. With the gifts you have, meet their needs. And how do we do that the best? Together as the church. Because not all of us have all the resources or gifts available to us. But together we do as a body. So here's an example. Serve those around you. Serve them willingly. And meet their needs. And then Luke goes on to this wonderful little section of blessings 
and woes. Luke's version of the Beatitudes in verses 20 to 22, which is shorter than Matthew's. It's not necessarily the same exact event anyway. Jesus probably preached these same ideas and principles over and over during his three years of ministry and would have repeated them to different people at different times. So Luke includes a shorter version of of these blessings, these beatitudes, but he also includes something that Matthew does not, woes. Here we have blessings and woes, four of each and echoes of each other. Poor versus rich, hungry versus full, weeping versus laughter, and being hated versus being spoken well of which is kind of an echo if you think back to chapter 4 of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Not exactly the same, but there Jesus was tempted by hunger, by the desires of the flesh. He was tempted by power. And he was tempted to question the promises of God. Here the temptation, here the trial, here the, the challenge includes hunger accompanied by poverty. So there's an appeal to our own fleshly desires. Weeping is not an exact echo of Jesus' temptation, but why do we weep and mourn oftentimes as believers? And I think this is what Jesus is getting at, and I'll get there in a minute. Oftentimes we begin to doubt the promises of God. Woe is me in these terrible straits. The idea of being hated versus being liked seems to be somewhat similar to to the power being offered to Jesus. Take that power. Take it now. Be the king of all these kingdoms if you'll just bow to me, says Satan. There's a similar temptation here for us. Get people to like you. (laughs) Be popular. Get people to speak well of you. It's a different kind of power but I think a very similar kind of temptation. So not exactly the same temptations, but an echo of them, which is a reminder that when Jesus calls disciples to follow him, he calls them to a life and to difficulties and trials and temptations that he's already faced, that he's already dealt with, that he's already overcome. Jesus doesn't call us to anything different than what he himself has gone through. There's nothing that you have faced that he has not also in some way, shape, or form experienced as well. And if he's experienced them, then we can expect to experience them. The servant is not greater than the master. So let's talk about these blessings versus woes. We tend to think of blessings and curses as being kind of an Old Testament thing, an Old Covenant thing. We think of the the people of Israel called to keep the covenant of God, keep his laws which he had given to them. And if they keep them, they will be blessed. And if they do not obey and do not keep them, they will be cursed. There's a difference here. These are blessings and woes. And I'll cover this again in a little bit. Woes are not curses. Curses are punishment. They're judgment. Woes are Woes are something to be sad about. 
Well, let's cover the blessings first. Trials and difficulty are part of the disciples' life. They should be expected, says Peter. And here Jesus reminds us of greater truths that are tied to him and to the promises of God. And the key to that, the central promise that he focuses on, is that there is a kingdom coming. A life of joy and peace without sickness or trial or trouble. And he points to that promise, that reality that is coming, and that that promise of God is greater and more valuable than the things of this life. And that's really the contrast that's going on here. What God promises us is better than the things of this life that we attach ourselves to. It's no different than what he told the Old Testament people of God in Isaiah that we read earlier. You value these prophets that can do, or these idols that can do nothing. You look to these things that have no power. You're content and satisfied with the things of this life. Or what Paul says to the Corinthians. Greeks want wisdom. Jews look for a sign. They want something tangible, something they can grab hold of. Something they can anchor themselves on in this life, in this world, in this experience that gives them some level of satisfaction and contentment with this life. God doesn't do that. He uses the foolishness of, gospel, of the gospel to confound the wisdom of men. And he uses the, the trials and difficulties of this life to remind us that there are greater glories to come. Which do you value more? The passing, fragile, temporary pleasures of this life or the glories of the life to come? That's what's really being contrasted here. So if you're poor, remember that yours is the kingdom of God. You possess the very kingdom of God. We are a kingdom of priests of the Most High God. We will rule and reign together with Him in the new kingdom that is coming. So if you're poor now, remember it's temporary. It's passing. A greater life is coming and a greater kingdom is coming. You're blessed not because you're poor, You're blessed because of the greater glory that is coming. So we're not to run around like monks, giving up all our possessions, and pretend that somehow we're holy because and blessed because we have nothing. That's not the idea. When you're poor, remember the greater blessing that is to come. You are blessed because you have a kingdom and a future in that kingdom. Are you hungry? Again, look to the future. There's a greater kingdom. No hunger, no wants, no desire, no appetite that you might have that will not be satisfied in ways that you cannot imagine in the kingdom that is to come. You're blessed not because you are hungry, but because you again possess a greater kingdom. Do you weep? Welcome to life in this world where sorrow and misery are part of the experience we have due to the curse of sin, the curse of the fall. Life is full of trial and trouble, and weeping is a natural reaction to that. Yet again, here you're not blessed because you weep. You're blessed because a greater future awaits, a future of joy and of laughter, a 
as we heard from the psalm this morning. Laughter. Not laughing at others. Not laughing sarcastically or ironically as we do today. Some of us are very good at sarcasm. But laughing for joy. Just for the sheer joy of life. And yeah, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been so happy you just want to laugh? Why are you laughing? I don't know. I'm happy. <laughs> Brides do this at their wedding. Parents do this when a child is born. We do it in all sorts of different kinds of circumstances. We laugh because we're happy, not because something's funny. Just for the sheer joy that springs out from our hearts. That kind of laughter. So full of joy you can't help but laugh. Do you weep? You're blessed because you have joy unmeasurable that's coming. Are you hated? Are you reviled? Are you called evil because you are a disciple of Christ? This is true for everyone who believes sooner or later. But it's hard for us to accept, I think. American Christians in particular seem to want to think that Christianity is something that should be well thought of by those around us. I even had a, one of my friends on Facebook write a, a long essay about you know, why is the church hated in the world and we need to turn that around so that we're respected again. I'm like, when have we ever been respected? Really? Really? Because anytime we preach repentance due to sin, turn away from it or you will die, the world hates us and always will hate us. We can do everything right scripturally and still be hated and called evil. And why would we not? Our Lord was. Our Savior was. When he walked this earth. Because evil hates righteousness. Evil can't understand why we don't follow after them in the same behaviors and patterns and acts and thoughts. Evil loves company. Misery might love company. Evil definitely loves company. Because the more who join in, the more it validates the evil as being good, as if numbers determined right and wrong. But we don't participate, and they hate that. We live differently. We think differently. Again, as Peter reminds us, First Peter is worth reading, chapter 1 and chapter 4, chapter 4 in particular, that we should be hated. If we're going to be hated, only for being a Christian, not for being meddlers or busybodies or, or for sin, but only for being a Christian. And if that's true, then we can rejoice. And in fact, Peter says it as a command. We must rejoice. And Jesus says the same thing here in 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. How many of you have leaped for joy when you were being persecuted? It doesn't come naturally to us. But that should be where our perspective is. If our perspective is heavenly, if our perspective is looking to the glories that are to come, that are ours already in Christ, if I'm counted worthy to suffer, that, that's a, I'm in. <laughs> I'm one of God's people. It's a privilege. Does that come naturally? No. I hate 
being persecuted. So we need God to work in us by the power of His Spirit. You're blessed. Your reward in heaven, says Jesus, is great. Blessings await you in abundance. Note, the blessings here are not earthly. Once again, the TV preachers have got it wrong. They, they get half the equation right. When you're down, when you're troubled, when you're facing difficulty, remember God, but then they twist it. Remember that God has promised you something in this life and he's about to make things better. No, maybe he won't. You might die in prison. You might lose your head to an evil terrorist. You might be enslaved for the rest of your life. But you have a greater future in heaven. Your reward in heaven is great. Those are the blessings. We're blessed not because of things here, but because of things to come. We're blessed in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. But contrary to the blessings are the woes, and here's where I want to focus on the idea and remind us. We've talked about this before in Luke. The woes here are not condemnations. They are not judgments. It's an expression of sorrow. The Greek word has this overwhelming connotation of how sad is that? How terrible is it that someone is in this situation? It's something we mourn about. It's something we are very, very sorry for. Jesus is setting up what follows and what, Lord willing, we'll talk about next week, that we are to love our enemies and not judge them. Here he just wants to communicate this idea that we should have pity on. Not condescending pity, pity from our hearts for those experiencing the things that he describes. We should have pity on, we should feel sorry for those people whose satisfaction comes from the things of this life. How terrible is it for them to find contentment and satisfaction and meaning in the things of this world. How, how, how terrible. They're missing out on such greater blessing that's been offered to them by God. There's an old song by Keith Green that captures this in, in part of the lyrics. How can they feel so at home down here when there's so much more up above? How can they feel so content with the things of this world when there's something so much better for them? This is the attitude that we should have toward those around us. It's the attitude that Jesus has. This is his pronouncement of woe. How terrible it is for these people. And as followers called to be disciples of Christ, this should be our attitude as well. And Far too often, brothers and sisters, it is not. How terrible for those who are rich, who have their consolation in their riches. What a tragedy that is, that they find satisfaction and contentment there. Now here again, wealth is not a bad thing. Jesus is not condemning wealth. He's condemning satisfaction and consolation in that wealth. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
how terrible it is that people would find their meaning in life from how rich they are. Where is our satisfaction? In the world in its comforts or the promises of God? If your riches console you, then you are a person to be pitied. How sad that is. Are you full now? You will be hungry. Do you laugh now? You will weep. How tragic that is. How terrible that is for that person. The judgment of God is coming against all unrighteousness, against sin. How terrible it is for someone to fall into the hands of an angry God, of a wrathful God. How terrible it is that they laugh now. How terrible it is that they are hungry now, or that they are full now. Terrible hunger is coming. Terrible sorrow is coming. We've talked about this more than once in the last few weeks, that example of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus teaches, and the rich man pleading that Abraham would send Lazarus to his brother so that they would not avoid the same fate, begging for a drop of water on his tongue, for just some measure of relief. How terrible it is for those who are full And for those who laugh now, great sorrow is coming. How tragic it is when we hear, and I hear it far too often, I'll be partying in hell with my friends. No, you won't. You will be hungry, you will be thirsty, you will weep, you will suffer greatly. Do people praise you? Do you like their praise? Beware. The false prophets were praised as well, and God judged them terribly. Do you like the attention and affection of people around you? Is that where you find meaning and and purpose in life? Do you get all depressed when people don't like you? How terrible that is. How sad. God knows you by name. God knows you. God knows you. Does it matter if anybody else knows you? He loved you with a great love. He was rich in mercy toward you. We read that from Ephesians 2 earlier today. For you he did that. Who cares what the world thinks? So again, summary, lessons for Christ followers, Jesus followers, we like to call ourselves in the lingo today. Disciples of Christ. Serve your neighbors. Set your minds on things above, things to come, the kingdom to come, rather than things on earth. As it says elsewhere, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. These things will be added to you. And if you let the things of this life affect your attitude, how tragic that is, how sad that is. Your focus is on the wrong things, popularity or wealth or a happy, easy, contented life. I want to say here, not that we shouldn't be ever, I'm not saying that we should be stoic and unemotional and never react to things around us. Again, that's not what Jesus is saying. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But if we find our meaning in that, if we find our contentment in life, in, the, in, in our happiness or sadness, then we're focusing on the wrong thing. Our focus should be always on Christ and his kingdom. 
the certain sure promises of God that will be fulfilled, no doubt about it, and that sustain us through the ups and downs of life, such that they fade in importance to us. The promises of God will carry you through the deep valleys, but keep you grounded on the heights of joy as well. For those who are disciples of Christ already, good. Praise God. And get ready for a different kind of life. A different kind of attitude. Because when the word calls you to be his disciple, this different kind of life and this different kind of attitude is what he's calling you to. He begins by calling you to himself to repent of your sins, to believe and put your faith and trust and hope in him. And to any that have not, they need to do it now, or those great woes are coming. But for us who are called, we serve others, we seek his kingdom, and we look to the reward that is to come. And that reward comes when Jesus himself comes again as he promised to do. And I, for one, hope that day comes quickly. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we do thank you again for the precious gifts, the treasures that are ours in Jesus Christ. It is hard for us, Father, to focus on those things when the daily ups and downs of life buffet us and and come against us and distract us and, and demand our attention. Keep us grounded, nevertheless, in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let him be the rock upon which we build our house so that the wind, when the wind and the waves come, we are able to stand. Keep us rooted firmly in him. And in him, being rooted and grounded in him, may we bear fruit for your glory and for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. May we have true compassion on those who are caught up in the attractions of this world. What a tragedy that is. And may our compassion lead to service, to the witness of the gospel, to calling them as well to repentance and faith and to something that is far better, far beyond what they currently know and experience. We cannot do this in our own strength, by our own power, by our own reasoning, by the winsomeness of our own actions or the cleverness of our own tongue. Indeed, you have chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. We are foolish, but we know that you can use us for your glory, and we ask that you might do so. For your glory, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we ask all of these things. Amen.